You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast, where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.nyc and StageLeft, the podcast. Well, hello, Rob. Hello, Jamie. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm great because it's part two of our flop show. Yes, famous flops. Uh, If you tuned in last week, we did our list of 10 different categories. But of course, we got through half of it because there's so much to talk about. There is, and we have a lot to say. Yes, well, of course, of course. Um, So this week, we're going to pick up where we left off and uh, continue with our list uh, going through history of some famous flops. Uh, Of course, last week, we were joined by the incredible, legendary Betty Buckley, who gave us the the true story about Carrie, all the the back story uh, that you don't necessarily hear. It was a real treat to hear from someone who was actually there because there's so much lore that's been built up around Carrie and boy, did she deliver? Yeah, well, and also Betty is so thoughtful, you know, yes. she's so insightful mm-hmm. and she has such a terrific brain and her memories of, of what happened are so exciting vivid. and fun and vivid, yes. but yeah. also she's just like such a thoughtful person. Like every word she speaks has great thought and meaning to it. And so I, I love talking to her. I could literally talk to her about anything. Yeah, no, for sure. And we're going to finish this episode with uh, a a nice bookend getting back to Carrie. So you'll hear from Betty on this episode as well. She comes back. Oh, of course, of course. Um, Just like Carrie did. Uh, The the musical, not the... Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, We're with you, Rob. We're with you. Yeah, yeah. So before we get there, though, we're going to finish our list. So last week we talked about Allegro and Pipe Dream, the Rodgers and Hammerstein flops. Stephen Sondheim's Anyone Can Whistle and Merrily We Roll Along. Kelly, which is a personal favorite of mine. And we finished with Breakfast at Tiffany's. So those were the first four that we talked about sort of categorically. So let's move on to our fifth. But before we do that, I think we need to address a 
a tiny little elephant in the room. Oh, yes, elephants. Elephants. I love elephants. There was a little bit of chatter about uh, our use of the word flop. And I, I think it's just important to note that it, it words have meaning, words have power. I don't mean to say that they don't. But even though we're using the word flop and it has a negative connotation, we are coming at this from a total place of love, which I think everybody understands. I mean, I think if you listen to how we talk about the shows, yes, I can be a little sassy at times about certain things. That's really just me being a dick. But we love these shows. And even the shows that we didn't quite know about necessarily, like Kelly, Rob's new favorite show, um, <laughs> Uh, these shows have great merit and we love them. And so this is not necessarily a takedown. It's just the word we use to describe a show that was not as successful as perhaps it could have been. Yeah, absolutely. As I said on the first um, part of this episode, you know, uh, the technical definition of a flop would be a show that doesn't make back its investment. And by that logic, I mean, 80% of shows that are ever on Broadway would be flops, right? So we don't mean any ill will. Well, moving on to our, our fifth category, you know, we were debating whether or not oh <laughs> this God, is my Jamie least. Yeah, I, this is this is going to be hard for me. But wow, car- wow. carry on. Well, Jerry Herman, uh, who of course we love and adore, um, and who we lost uh, at the end of last year, um, you know, wrote Hello Dolly and Mame and La Cage Um, But he also had a string of three flops: uh, Dear World, Mac and Mabel, and The Grand Tour. And you know, I thought, well, should we do something about Jerry Herman's flops? Um, but since we had done an entire episode about Mac and Mabel when it was at Encores back in February, I thought we would pivot to another hit composer of the era who also had uh, three very big flops. You might be wondering, who is that? Well, <laughs> none other than Galt McDermott. Now, Galt McDermott is not a household name like Jerry Herman or Stephen Sondheim or any of the greats of musical theater, but he uh, wrote a little show called Hair that was obviously a huge, huge breakthrough success um, off-Broadway and then on-Broadway in 1968. Um, And you know, brought the rock sound to Broadway, which in the ni- late 1960s, early 1970s, everybody was wondering, oh my gosh, show tunes are now no longer Amer- America's songbook. What are we going to do? Is the theater going to die? So the proposed solution at the time for uh, producers who I guess thought they were being savvy was to try to, um, you know, strike gold again and and have uh, Mr. McDermott pen a string of of rock musicals, uh, none of which were successful. So he did do uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, which won Best Musical, 1972. Um, So he was riding a high when uh, later that fall, uh, Dude came to Broadway. So Dude is the first of the three Galt McDermott flops we will talk about briefly. Uh, Jamie's like just so bored right now. <laughs> this is basically a conversation of one, just so you wow. know. Wow. Oh my gosh. The hatred you have. The hatred. I so hate the score to dude. I, I will say I like the poster. I think that the poster sort oh, of the poster's interesting. cool. Yeah, I, I, very cool. I, do, yeah. I do like that. I, it was such a <laughs> struggle for me to listen to this. Um, it has, yeah, it's, yeah. it's recorded. It's out there. Yeah, you can, you can there. hear it. Yeah. It's in a weird way. It's mildly pleasant. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not offensive. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have, you know, Mary Tyler Moore saying, God damn it, cocksucker or anything like that. Right. But, <laughs> but it, it, it's just after hair, it's just hard to listen to this sort of recycled dreck is uh, all I can say.
this was an original story, an allegory about good and evil. Um, you know, very much a product of its time. I'd love to know what everyone involved uh, was uh, doing in terms of recreational drugs. Uh, the show had 16 previews and 16 performances uh, at the Broadway theater, which they had completely renovated. They gutted and renovated the interior of the theater, cost $800,000 uh, to create a, a circus-like arena in the Broadway theater. Um, and they filled the, you know, the, the floor with fake dirt and had these ramps and runways and catwalks and columns and trapezes and trapdoors, you know, to make this sort of immersive theatrical experience, which in 1972, you know, was rather, rather ahead of its time. The overall effect of the entire thing was that you were sort of witnessing this like circus being performed in a primeval forest. Um, you know, instead of having orchestra seats and mezzanine seats, you would sit in the valleys and the foothills or in the mountains and the mountaintops, right? Uh, again, very, very 1972, uh, spacey. Um, and, you know, it was a huge flop, right? I mean, completely ripped apart. Um, can... Mandelbaum in his book said that it was perhaps the most incomprehensible show ever presented on a Broadway stage. It lost $1 million, but I guess the silver lining of the entire thing is that uh, that renovation of the Broadway theater paved the way for Hal Prince's Candide in the round. Um, so I guess we can thank uh, the failure of Dude for the success of Candide, which would follow, uh, I think, in 1974. And it uh, did have Nell Carter. So and it had Nell Carter. I, right. I'm always yeah. here for Nell Carter, and I'll yeah. be very supportive yeah. of that. But totally, but totally. Well, just as his luck would be, five weeks later, literally five weeks after the closing of Dude, right in November 1972, Mr. McDermott had a second musical open on Broadway called Via Galactica. I mean, they just get it, worse. It just gets exactly. worse and worse. If you thought Dude was weird, this is a futuristic story of social outcasts living on an asteroid in the year 2972. Among them, a space sanitation man who collects trash in a clamshell-shaped garbage ship called the Helen of Troy. What the hell? <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's just... Unbelievable. It was another one of the first musicals to lose more than a million dollars. Well, they um, deserved it, was, it. I have to say, this, <laughs> this one, they deserve to lose every penny that Let's they... Let's not be mean. Let's not be mean. It was one of the first entirely sung through American musicals. Um, much like Dude, it was considered to be rather incomprehensible by audiences and critics alike. The set consisted of seven trampolines to simulate the weightlessness because they were in space. There were laser <sighs> beams. There were flying spacecraft. Um just a hot, hot mess. There is no cast album, and probably for good. Um, but fun fact, it was the first show to open at the Eurus Theater, which, of course, is now uh, the Gershwin Theater. Uh, and the original title of the show was not Via Galactica, but rather Up, with an exclamation point. Um, and they decided that they needed to change the title of the show when they saw the marquee would read Up, Eurus Theater. <laughs> so... And on that note, I think we should move on to our next show. Yes, yes, yes. So the third and the triple crown of Galt McDermott flops actually came about a decade later. Uh, it's called The Human Comedy. This is 1983. 
Uh, it's an adaption of a novel, uh, sort of a coming of age story um, about a young boy um, and uh, a telegram messenger who uh, is exposed to the sorrows and the joys experienced by his family and the residents of his small town during World War II. Premiered at the Public Theater, actually. Joe Papp was behind this project, had 79 performances, open to rave reviews. Frank Rich, the New York Times, loved it. And then it transferred to the Royale Theater on Broadway, where it ran a whopping 13 performances in 1984. And, you know, an interesting thing about that is at the time, um, the New York Times had a policy that its critics, if you reviewed a show off-Broadway, you didn't get to re-review it when it transferred. Now, of course, that's different today. And in fact, when we talked to Ben Brantley, he pointed out that not only does it get re-reviewed, but the same critic is has the option to re-review it, right? That that the preference is actually that the same critic gets to re-review it. So unfortunately, the human comedy was robbed of a, of a re- revisiting by Frank Rich um, and uh, sort of petered out. It's a fascinating show. There is actually a cast recording of the full thing. There are 86 songs yep. in the show. It is completely sung through. And, you know, it, it's sort of like a folk opera. I mean, it, it's not sort of, it is. It's a, it's a folk opera. There's, there's no real book. It's, it's all sung through. And, you know, the approach that worked probably was charming in the East Village at the public theater of having, you know, sort of no scenery except for, you know, projections ended up not really transferring to Broadway, right? Where you're in a huge house that has, you know, a gravitas to it. And then, you know, the show just felt rather small and, and sort of cheap, for lack of a better word. And it hasn't been seen since. You know, there was a staged reading at the York Theater in 1997. But that's it. So justice for the human comedy. Well, you know, Galt, lightning doesn't strike twice. Yeah, well, it did. It did. He wrote Two Gentlemen of Verona, uh, which was, you know, a huge hit. Um, doesn't strike a third, fourth, fifth, sixth time, <laughs> as we learned. You know how I feel about Two Gentlemen of Verona. So Yeah, I, I do. I'm, I do, and it's, it's a crying shame. I'm not a fan of that show. In fact, that show right. makes me angry, but... Wow. That's wow. Okay. Well, let's move on then to a category that uh, Jamie's so excited for. His cockles are warm for our next group well, speaking, of sequels. Speaking of lightning not striking twice. <laughs> yeah. So category six uh, are three or four, depending on how you put it, uh, musicals that were all sequels to other musicals. Now, this idea has a really, really spotty history. I mean, I don't think there's a single example of a musical sequel that was actually successful. Um, the first one being, of course, Let Them Eat Cake, which was a sequel to Of the I Sing. Um, Divorce Me Darling, which I'm sure you've never heard of, I'd never heard of it, was a sequel to The Boyfriend. Um, and of course, you know, there is Love Never Dies, which is a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera. Um, well, if I've learned one thing from yeah. doing research for this this episode sequels are terrible idea there's no reason so we're going to talk about three sequels right now we're going to talk about bring back birdie we're going to talk about the best little house goes public and we're going to talk about the duo of sequels the 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 twins annie two miss hannigan's revenge and annie warbucks the titles alone are making me cringe well well here's the thing 
I spent a lot of time in this, I in know. this world I know. this very, week. Yeah. And, and the same thing is true of all of them. You know, and this is not a, I'm not making a huge re- revelation here. They all try to recreate the success of their right. more famous parents. And right. by doing that, what they always do, all three of these shows basically follow the same format as the first show very, mm. very badly. In fact, Bring Back Birdie is the most sort of the most heinous in that department. They, <laughs> they literally do a telephone hour, which is called Moving Out. children are moving out and the jungle gym in this is suspended television monitors that hang from the rafters and everywhere i mean it's just it's it's beyond comprehension i think we should probably like particularly with bring back birdie i think we should give a little bit of the plot which is um it's now 20 years later albert and Mm -hmm. rosie have have moved to the suburbs he is an english teacher she is a housewife their kids are grown up right so now their kids are roughly the same age as as the the two kids in the first one but it's 20 years later times are different it's the early 80s and in this one they they decide that they need to find conrad birdie who has disappeared for 20 years and bring him back so that they can Win a fortune of twenty thousand dollars, I think it is. And, twenty thousand dollars. And that's the premise of the show. So it's basically the exact plot, only yeah, yeah. very badly done. And in this one, the young boy, their, their son, he wants he joins a punk rock band, and the and the girl, the teenage girl who is about to move out, this song moving out is basically her. This she's I think sixteen years old, and she's going to move in with her boyfriend. But in, she doesn't move in with her boyfriend. She joins a cult. I mean, the thing is just a oh mess. My, God. my favorite yeah. part about Bring Back Birdie is that when they finally find Conrad, he's now yeah. overweight and he's the mayor of some town in Arizona. And yet he still has, even though he's a good 40 pounds heavier, he still has a gold LeMay jumpsuit. And well, it fits. And it, and it fits. Doesn't- and it fits. Doesn't everyone have a custom gold lame jumpsuit in their closet? I mean, I know I do. <laughs> I, supp- I suppose if that's your thing, then that's uh, what you have. Well, the show did not go out of town because of that, that complicated TV set. Literally set. Set. The TV set set that you were talking about. Um, which, of course, was fatal, as is usually the case here. Um, and it closed at the Martin Beck Theater after only four 
performances. Well, Dick Van Dyke was smart enough to stay away from this one. I will say, and this is a testament to the great Cheetah Rivera, Mm. um, because this album exists. You can hear the score. Parts of it are on YouTube. In fact, I think the whole thing is on YouTube, but there's, there's varying degrees of quality footage on YouTube that you can see. So you can get a sense of what the show was like. However, if you listen to the album, even with this middling score by the original, by the original team, right? Um, uh, Lee Strauss Ad- and Lee, yeah. Uh, Adams, uh, Lee Adams, and Charles Strauss. Yeah, um, yeah. Cheetah Rivera is given second, third-rate material, and she makes it sing. And it's the yeah. same thing. She, you know, in 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 Bye Bye Birdie, she has Spanish Rose, right? In this, she has a, sh- a song that's very similar, and sh- it's not good, but she sells it. She really makes it work. He thinks that I'll collapse. Well, is wrong. I've been under wraps way too long. Thinks I'm gonna miss his silly grin a lot. That's a laugh and a half. <laughs> Thinks I'll sit in it. Thinks I'll have a fit. Thinks I'm gonna quit. Well, I'm not. Well, I'm not. Well, I'm not. Well, I'm not. She was nominated for a Tony Award. The show ran four performances and she still got a Tony Award nomination. So that, you know, that really says it all. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's nothing she can't do. Um, I will say, and then we can, we can move on. Um, there is a, a funny moment where they finally get to the Arizona town and they meet this mayor and they're looking for Conrad Birdie. And they realize in the conversation that they are talking to Conrad Birdie. He's just older <laughs> and fatter. Um, he then sings a song called Never Go Back. And I thought, wow, if they had only followed their own advice. Um, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, not only, uh, let, let's, 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 let's go chronologically. So not only did Charles Strauss go back with Bring Back Birdie, he went back with Annie. <sighs> well, this is less troubling to me because I okay. actually like this score. I, I okay. actually like... Which one? Well, I well, guess it's the same, right? Well, it is and it isn't. So, um, so Annie 2. <laughs> Annie 2, Miss Hannigan's Revenge, actually has, um, I, I believe it has a studio recording, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the recording where Carol Burnett serves as sort of a narrator for the story. It also the the what would become the se- what would become the revised version of Miss Hannigan's Revenge. Annie Warbucks has a spectacular cast recording, right? And and yeah. and, and that's the show that they got to a a place that many people agree was a pretty good place. So the history of the show is they decided to capture the success of Annie, and I believe on the closing day of the original production of Annie in 1983, Martin Charnin announced from the curtain speech that they were going to do a sequel, right? So it was, mm-hmm. it was something that, that happened fairly quickly after the show closed. Um, and it was a disaster. I mean, the whole, the whole plot is, is basically Miss Hannigan has decided that she's going to seek revenge on Annie and Oliver Warbucks, but her motivations are, are very questionable because no, why, why <laughs> she really, they didn't wrong her, right? She right. was, she was yeah. part of her brother's scheme to defraud them, but really right. Annie never did anything to her and Oliver Warbeck's never did anything to her. So the whole yeah. motivation for her is, is skewed. Off. There's yeah. also this very implausible plot line where um, they're trying to, take away Annie from Oliver Warbucks by saying that a single father can't, can't 
keeper, right? Can't keep an orphan. So he must get married. And so Miss Hannigan, she disguises herself to fool Oliver Warbucks into marrying her. Now, this all happens fairly soon after the action of the first story ends. So he doesn't recognize even in a makeover in a wig, that it's, oh my gosh. It, yeah. Well, that's that's why this closed out of town uh, in D.C. in 1990 and never came to New to, York. To terrible reviews, and and I will say yeah. there is again, I have a I have a soundboard recording of of Miss Hannigan's revenge, and there's a lot wrong with it. There's a moment in the first act where um, the Miss Hannigan character, played by Dorothy Loudon, is explaining her hard luck life to Oliver Wobbuck. She's disguised as this this woman. Um, and she sings this marvelous song called But You Go On. Uh, and it basically talks about all the terrible things that have happened to her. And in that moment, Dorothy Loudon is so brilliant and so moving. And it's just, mm. it's, it's such a stunning, stunning performance. So much so. And in, in the soundboard recording, you can hear the audience turning on the, I mean, you, people, you can hear the restlessness. You can hear that yeah. people are not enjoying it. However, when she finishes that song, she gets a round of applause that goes on for 48 seconds. Wow. Now that's a long time. Yeah, that is a long time. Take In your, America, take, yeah, for sure. <laughs> take, your, take your phone and clock 48 seconds. That's a long time for, for a round of applause. Life is full of scrapes. You live your life. Well, as you know, it's like it's like Betty Buckley and Carrie, right? You know, in the middle of a show that has all sorts of problems, these you know Titanic performers can deliver, right? Can can show why they are who they are, or like Cheetah Rivera getting a Tony nomination for a show that ran four performances, right? Well, I think it's I think it's part and parcel of what we were talking about. They, these shows, as flawed as they are, they all have things about them that live on. They have absolutely they have moments, yeah. you know. Miss Hannigan's Revenge, as we said, would later become Annie Warbucks, which was successful and did have a, a it was a critical. Ran off Broadway. Ran yeah. off Broadway. It got good reviews. It was supposed to move to Broadway. They ran out of money or didn't, couldn't raise the money. Um, but that recording exists and you can, you, can, you can actually hear how they changed it and how it could have worked. But it's still yeah. a terrible idea. <laughs> well, speaking of terrible ideas... You don't exactly look like the type to run a girl's store. That's why I need you. As my head consultant, I'll pay you 5% of the gross, and here's your first class ticket, Dallas to Las Vegas. 
The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public. This did play on Broadway in 1994 for a whopping 16 performances at the Lundfontaine Theater. Jamie, what can you tell me about The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public? Well, I can tell you again, it's a continuation of 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 the story it's i i believe they jump a few years it's miss mona again what's interesting about now this this time miss mona has decided to move the operation to las vegas because she realized going to vegas <laughs> because she's told that prostitution in nevada is legal legal yeah which is not untrue um however what's interesting about this story is that it was inspired by a real life woman jerry copa who was a bank trustee who in the um, early 80s became a madam and ran a brothel. Um, and, and so it's fascinating that they, they thought this would be a good idea for the continuation story for, for Miss Mona. Um, it's really icky. And it's really, it's, it's the early 90s now. So we're at the height of the AIDS epidemic and we're doing a show about prostitution. It just, everything about it felt uncomfortable. Talk about being tone deaf and the wrong time and place for something. Yeah, yeah. I've, you know, Bob Mackey did the costumes and I've watched some of the footage and it all just looks like a disaster. You know, it doesn't even look good uh, as a show. Yes, because it's all neon and it's very 80s and there's lots of like, there's lots of dry ice and smoke everywhere. I will say the costumes and there's an infomercial. So this is interesting about the show. They did what they call the first ever infomercial about a Broadway show. And there's about a 40 minute video of, of sort of the making of the best little whorehouse. And in that you see a quite, quite a bit of Bob Mackie and the costumes. I think they're actually kind of great, but they're, they're, they're tacky. They're tacky. They're, 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 (laughs) but there's a, there's a certain cleverness to them. What I found was so incredible about this, this infomercial is just how times have changed. You watch this infomercial and they just objectify these women. Oh yeah. And it's mm-hmm. really like, it's just me too, me too. In fact, Bob Mackie says, Tommy Toon doesn't hire four foot nine chunky girls. <gasps> oh, now I love Bob Mackie. He's a genius. Yeah. And I don't think he meant anything malicious about it by it. Uh, you know, the times were different. That doesn't make it right. I'm not, I'm not right. excusing no. his behavior, no. but it's just so shocking that, you know, you, you to, to Look at that through today's lens is is hard. They also their ticket number to buy tickets was one eight hundred brothel. Yeah, you could, classic. You could never do that today. Classic. Um, now, <laughs> remove all the ickiness away. Something that's fascinating about Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public is the producer uh, Terry Childs removed all of the seats from the Lunt Fontaine Theater at her expense and. Changed the put a actually put a rake in and then staggered the seats and made more comfortable seats, which the theater owners did. The Needlelanders didn't pay for that; she did, and that was a selling mm. point of the show. So, <laughs> interestingly enough, like who doesn't like a comfortable seat? Who doesn't like a good rake? Who doesn't like staggered rows? All that's great. Yeah, but yeah. when your s- number one selling point of the show right, is yeah. the seats and not the actual show. You have a problem. Goodbye to good old boys, sucking on their long neck bears, bellies hanging out like sleeping. Oh, goodbye to listening to them sing about their mamas. 
Let's hope that we never see another sequel uh, <laughs> to a musical on Broadway. You know, the thing that strikes me about why sequels don't work, um, and we've just talked about three or four examples, um, uh, what comes to mind is actually a quote from George C. Wolfe, the great director and, and writer. Um, and he, he once quipped that film is about story, TV is about characters, and theater is about ideas. And to me, the reason that these sequels don't work is that they're trying to serialize something. They're trying to make theater be about characters or about stories when what theater is about is ideas. And all they're doing is just presenting the same idea. And that's why they don't work. It's very true. <laughs> wisdom wisdom from George Seawolf. Uh, well, moving on to uh, our seventh uh, slot, we put in Sideshow from 1997 which you know obviously is one of the one of the more i guess celebratory stories we could we could tell here because you know the show opened played 91 performances in 97 and closed but then you know received uh, a revival um that was in DC and then came to Broadway in 2014 uh it was not necessarily successful it only ran 56 performances it ran shorter um but it's the only show on our list of flops that that did have that second chance that we kind of wish most if not all um to have um and I saw the 2014 version I didn't see the 97 version although I'm obsessed with that cast album um and I have to say I really enjoyed the revival. I thought it was a terrific show. I mean, I could understand why, you know, um, substantively, right, in terms of subject matter, it might not be everyone's cup of tea, um, you know, to see a, a musical about conjoined twins. Um, but um, I, I find that there's a lot to really love in Sideshow. I, I agree with that. There's a lot to love in Sideshow. And I agree with the fact that the the revival was very successful and addressed most of the problems of the 97 original version yeah. and fixed them. Yeah. I saw the 97 version um, mm. more than, more than once. It's Drumroll. awful. It was terrible. <laughs> it's, it was a bad show that had a lot yeah. of really good things in it. And yeah. and yeah. Some of those really good things. Norm Lewis was phenomenal. The uh, the women yeah. were exceptional. Uh, the cast, Alice Ripley Alan, and Emily Skinner. They were. I mean, that was like that was an yeah. event. But the material just didn't live up to this incredible cast. Um, it also mm. it had a look. You know, it definitely had a look. It definitely it definitely lived in a world that was very consistent. All of those things. There was a lot to admire about the original sideshow. Um, and it's yeah. certainly, you know, not unlike wicked strikes a chord with a certain demographic and, you know, these shows get into our, our veins, particularly right. the, the less successful ones. We'll talk about one a little bit later that did that for both you and I. However, 
it isn't a good show. And so what's remarkable to me about this is that they really did fix it so many years later. They really did yeah. figure out, they found the show I think they were trying to do initially. And for whatever reason, they didn't get there. But they did get there. It's a great score. Yeah. It's a really good score. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an incredible score. I mean, Henry Krieger, who wrote the music to Dreamgirls, uh, you know, wrote the music here. And then Bill Russell, you know, wrote the book and the lyrics. Um, you know, Bill Condon, the, the, the director who, who made the film of Dreamgirls, I have to imagine that's what sparked his interest in, in working with, um, with uh, Henry Krieger and, and Bill Russell on Sideshow. Um, he is the one who sort of spearheaded that revival in, in 2014. And I, I have to say, I mean, it, it felt very cinematic on stage. It, it was did. A really, it was a really, I mean, I'll never forget the opening of that show, that revival in particular. Um, the way it was staged was absolutely stunning. I mean, I, one of those, those tableaus that I'll never forget. Um, okay, well, speaking of tableaus, uh, moving along to our eighth slot, 1999 saw the arrival and quick departure of The Civil War, well, musical by Frank Wildhorn. Yes. That Jamie has a lot of feelings about. Well, I, so I worked on this show. I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've joked on this show before, and I think it's even in my bio on our website, um, that I had a very lovely string of flops uh, in terms <laughs> of the shows that I worked on. On Broadway in the uh, in the in the '90s, and this was one of them. And I, I will say, this was a show that was um, much better in many ways than it got credit for. I think mm. I think um, you know Frank Wildhorn. I think is a terrific composer. He writes. He's written some really fabulous songs. Um, you can you know you can say what you want to about Jekyll and Hyde. You can say what you want to about Wonderland, um, but the man can write a tune. And mm. this score for civ this, this score for the Civil War is actually quite good. Um, there's no cast album. There's just the concept album. And the problem I think with the Civil War is that it really isn't a musical. It's really a concert. And there's mm. no real story or idea here. And if there is, as someone who worked on the show, I can't tell you what it is. So that's a problem right there. Um, it, 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 I mean, yes, it is, it's a story about the civil war. There's, there's, you know, there, there's, there's a through line of a soldier going off and leaving his girl and, you know, all of that stuff, but it really was muddled and it was, it had this terrific score and this great cast, Beth Level, Capathia Jenkins, Matt Bogart. Mm. I mean, there were some really talented people yeah. on that stage, but it just, and it was directed by Jerry Zachs. I mean, the man is a genius, but it was, it lived in two worlds of being a concept album slash concert sort of thing and then this Broadway musical and they mm. never figured out a way to make the two come together 
all that said, it was nominated for Best Musical. Yeah, I think it might be the only musical on this list that uh, was nominated for Best Musical. Um, and it had a tour, you know, in the year 2000. It played 61 performances at the St. James Theater on Broadway, um, you know, sort of came and went. Um, but, you know, it did have a tour. And it's, it's always something that's fascinating me. I loved the art for this show. It was a great, great poster, a great, you know, ad campaign that they did. Um, but it's never really done or or maybe it's never done at all you know in fact manhattan concert productions had announced that they were going to do it as part of their annual um you know they do an annual concert at lincoln center um and they announced it and then a couple weeks later they replaced it with jekyll and hyde (laughs) another frank wildhorn show so you know i was i was excited that they were going to do it um you know because it's something that that i've you know i've never seen and I, i don't i don't know how many people have and it Seems like it might be worth revisiting at some point, especially given the story and, you know, how in many ways we haven't gotten over the American Civil War and, you know, might never. Tell him how I fought the blue Proud and true Through the fire Tell my father so he'll know I love him so. Well, at the time, in 1999, you know, Frank Wildhorn, you know, hot off of uh, Jekyll and Hyde and the Scarlet Pimpernel, uh, became one of, you know, the few composers ever to have three shows on Broadway at the same time, you know, following Jerry Herman and Stephen Schwartz. So, you know, the Civil War was was a big deal when it came to Broadway. And it's just sort of kind of faded away and, and no one ever really talks about it. That's why I was excited when you when you added it to the list because I thought, yeah, let's talk about the Civil War. Well, you know? because for that reason alone, it was a huge flop. It was, it, it, yeah. it was uh, you know, it was one of those shows that everybody wanted to rip apart, not unlike Sideshow. You know, that was another, yeah. that was another show. People uh, sort of reveled in, 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 in its failure. Yeah, yeah, and it had a huge cult following mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. civil war to a certain extent had a had a had a bit of a cult following if you watch the performance that they do on the tony awards when they come out the audience goes crazy for it they get a huh. huge ovation and yeah. uh and i think there's a reason for that and and i think getting nomination but also the fact that frank wildhorn was such a thing at, right. at, at in the late 90s in the late 90s yeah. such a thing and we we rarely hear from him well, we're going to hear from him in a in a in another minute with our next category. <laughs> should we should we should we move on to it? And now we get to something I'm dreading and can't wait for. Yes, category number nine, vampires. Uh, in the early 21st century, there was a strange fascination with vampires on Broadway. Uh, every other season, from 2002 to 2006 there was a new vampire musical starting with dance of the vampires and then Dracula and then Lestat. They were all big flops. (laughs) Why? Why? (laughs) Why? If there's one thing worse than doing a sequel, that would be doing a vampire musical. A vampire musical. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how Prince has talked about this before, how, Attempts to musicalize gothic stories on stage have historically not worked. 
And in fact, you know, the Phantom of the Opera is is a bit of an outlier with its success, um, given the genre, right? And I think that is, you know, that's due to a lot of things, of course. You know, obviously it had Angela Weber's score um, and Hal Prince's vision behind it, right? But in terms of the substance of the story, you know, putting a gothic tale on stage, um, it kind of never works. And Dance of the Vampires has always held a very special place in my heart. I saw it a couple times uh, during its brief run in 2002. Um, and it, it had a bit of a, a, a rocky road to Broadway, as a lot of these shows do. But it premiered in Austria in 1997 and then was done in Germany in 2000. Um, and it's a musical adaptation of the Roman Polanski film, The Fearless Vampire Killers, Um which you know follows uh, a professor and his assistant attempting to prove the existence of, of vampires in Transylvania, um, and the Count von Krolock, um, you know, being sort of the 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 guy that they're after, um, and you know, it was sort of this this perfect oddity in Europe that was tremendously successful. Um, music and lyrics by Jim Steinman. Um, who, you know, despite his bona fides from the rock world, actually, you know, started in the theater. He was a protege of Joe Papps at the at the public theater in the 1970s. And that's where he really sort of, you know, cut his teeth. Um, so it's not to say that there isn't craft behind this show. I think there's actually a tremendous amount of craft. Um, what happened along the way was just a complete <laughs> unraveling of what this show actually is or ought to be. As originally done, it was, you know, it was a rather serious take on this vampire uh, lore. And by the time it came to Broadway, it had been completely rewritten as sort of a like Mel Brooks style, campy, body comedy. Um, and perhaps that was because of the success of the producers in the in the season before it. I don't know. But the producers got nervous and they brought in, you know, uh, a new book writer, David Ives, who is, you know, an acclaimed dramatist. And... The thing was completely at war in itself. I can I can report firsthand, having seen it a couple of times, that you know they had this like very sensual and gothic score and design, and then these like comedy moments or like you know this rather you know kind of sophomoric humor that was that was built into it. And then of course at the top of all of this was Michael Crawford. making his return to Broadway 15 years after The Phantom of the Opera. And he was so hell-bent on making sure that he, he his characterization of this character, Count von Krolock, wouldn't be compared to his performance in Phantom of the Opera, that he put on this like ludicrous accent. And, you know, it's just the whole thing is one giant hot mess, a whopping 56 performances at the Minskoff Theater. One of the worst things I have ever seen 
in my life. Wow. Without, without question. And, and I, um, you know, I, I was drinking in those days and (laughs) I, I was reminded, my husband reminded me of this, um, the other morning. I thought we had seen it together, but I saw it with my friend Ash and apparently, uh, my husband reminded me of this. We went to a place called Ariba Ariba, which is a very popular Mexican uh-huh. restaurant on Ninth Avenue. And we had these oversized margaritas and we must have had too many of them because I was very drunk. Um, I don't, I can't speak for mouse, but I was very, very intoxicated. So I don't really remember a lot of it. I remember that it was like, I remember laughing at it, but not in the ways that they wanted me to. So I revisited it. Um, Yesterday, I watched yeah. it online, and um, there's a fairly decent recording of it. And I have to say, um, I was not wrong. Um, even in my, <laughs> even in my, um, in my alcoholic stupor, um, my my reaction was appropriate. It's at war with itself, as you've mentioned. It's a it's a great spiritual descendant of Carrie. Yeah, it's sort of the same story. Right. Absolutely. And there's some quite, some of the music's quite good, but it's hard to enjoy any of that because it's just wrapped up in just this excess of crap. But it does contain a really (laughs) fun and memorable song called Garlic, uh, which comes early in act uh, one, sort of introduces the townspeople um, as, you know, as you're wont to do in a, in a musical comedy. and I've always found it to be quite catchy. Uh, but the lyrics kind of sum up everything that was wrong with this show. And I believe, Jamie, you, you wrote some of them down so you could, you could read them to us. I did because... a dramatic reading. Because yeah. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah, yeah. Not to mention that the whole time they're singing this song, they're sort of like doing a hokey, oh, not a clog dance, but it's a very energetic... <laughs> dance moment too and, yeah. and very movement heavy and it's everything's yeah. accentuated well, with a dance of the vampires you know you got to have some dance right but everything's accentuated with like a you know with like an arm swing and it's it's mm-hmm, anyway mm-hmm. here we go garlic garlic the secret of staying young garlic garlic that's why we're so well hung <laughs> what uh, what that's that sophomoric humor, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, don't, I can't even read any more of it. It just reminds me of Carrie, you know, out for blood, right? It's a simple little gig. You help me kill a pig, right? You know, just certain lyrics that are so bad, but are also just so great because they're so bad. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Um, well, moving on, unless you have anything more to say about Dance of the Vampires. No, I, uh, I wish we had said less. Yeah, well, speaking of Frank Wildhorn, uh, Dracula... Dracula the Musical uh, arrived on Broadway in 2004. It actually had, you know, a, a pretty lengthy run. This is one of the ones that violates our 100 performance rule. It ran 157 performances. Did you see Dracula? I did see Dracula. Okay, what did you think of it? We don't have um, to. We don't have to tell the story, right? Everybody knows the story of Dracula. Well, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, but it was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, it was wholly unremarkable, right? I mean, that that to me is what I remember most about it, is how little there was to remember about it. Tom Hewitt played Dracula. Um, Melissa Erica was in it. Uh, Kelly O'Hara was in it. I, I remember at the time there being a lot of sort of like word on the street about the fact that Kelly O'Hara at one point was like topless, right? And that was so scandalous that there was a topless performer on Broadway. And I was so bored while, while seeing this musical that I remember after it ended, I was like, oh, there was all that hubbub about someone being topless. Did that happen? And everyone around me was like, yeah, what are you talking about? You missed it? I was like, yeah, I guess I was just so bored that I missed the, you know, the infamous topless moment in the show. But I saw the show on a, on a student ticket. I think I paid $20, literally $20, because you could get a student ticket for $20 in 2004. I sat in the balcony of the Belasco Theater, which if you've ever sat in the balcony of the Belasco Theater, it is high up. And uh, the, the seats are not particularly good. Um, it's like the Lyceum. It's a terrible balcony. Um, but from where I was sitting, we could see all the traps in the floor of the set, right? So there were all these scenes, the way it was staged, where these doors would sort of fly up right? Um, from the floor. And all these things would come up from the floor. But we would watch this trap door just slowly open in preparation. So none of it was thrilling or shocking or surprising. It was just so hokey. Well, as somebody who sat in house seats, uh, in fact, I, th- yeah. I think I believe, I believe I sat next to Jerry Orbach and his wife. Yeah. Wow. It's no better down... <laughs> no better sitting in yeah. E on the aisle. I, I can promise you yeah, that. Um, yeah. I will say it did. It, it had a good look to it. It was a very bland okay. score. It ha- I, I found yeah. the score very bland. Kelly O'Hara yeah. was not Kelly O'Hara at the time. She was sort of new. Right, to, it's 2004. She was yeah. new to the scene. I think I remember thinking, oh, this lovely, this poor, lovely girl, right? Stuck, <laughs> stuck in this track. <laughs> Melissa Erico was known, obviously. She yeah, was, course, she was yeah. a star. Um, and she yeah. was marvelous. I will say she was really wonderful. And Tom Hewitt was was 
fine. But again, it was everything was underwritten. Nothing was nothing uh, nothing was well done. It it did have a good uh, look to it, but I can't tell you what that was. And everything flew. Everyone flew, right? There was a lot of flying. Yeah, there was a lot of flying, a lot of flying. Yeah. Why are they flying? Why is everyone <laughs> flying? I Why? Know. I don't know. Yeah, there was one scene in particular I I that's now just coming to memory where they were like riding a carriage. Do you remember this? I do. Yes. Yes. Now that you say and it. And it was, yes. And all this stuff kept flying by them. Yes. You know? Yes. Again, more things <laughs> flying. I remember people oh flying gosh. out of graves at one point. It, it yeah. just. It, hot mess. It was hot a hot mess. mess. And, and, yeah. Um, yeah. And there it is. Well, the 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 curse of the vampires uh, on Broadway ended, at least for now, in 2006 with Lestat, which was a musicalization of the the Anne Rice uh, character, um, uh, set um, you know in from France to New Orleans in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, music by Elton John, lyrics by Bernie Taupin, his longtime collaborator. I did not see this show. Uh, very few people did. It only played 39 performances at the Palace Theater. Um, Jamie, did you see it? No, I didn't care for the book. I didn't care for the film. And by this point, Nothing I was, was yeah. done with vampires. With vampires. Yeah. So, uh, um, no, I did not. Okay, well, maybe the less said about Lestat, the better. I would agree with that. Did have a great cast. Hugh Panero. The divine, always perfect, Carolee Camello, uh, Nikki uh, Nikki Renee Daniels, whom I am a big fan of, and of course Will Swenson. Ooh. I mean, you, you yes, couldn't yeah, do yeah. any better with that cast. But right, um, no. oof, all right, oof, yeah, all righty. Well, if you're still listening to us, God bless you. We have gotten to our tenth and final flop that we're going to talk about. Um, you know, it's endless. We could talk about flops forever, but we decided to include this last one. Um, because it holds a very special place in both of our hearts, running at exactly 100 performances, 2003's Taboo. Taboo is, I think, the whole reason that we landed on doing this this episode, because yeah. initially we had talked about doing an entire episode devoted to Taboo because we're both big fans of it. Um, yeah. And and then we sort of pivoted for a variety of reasons, and, 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 we, and we bring you this. But Taboo... Right. <laughs> Taboo is a really interesting story in terms of uh, in terms of flops. It's had a very interesting history. It had a very turbulent run on Broadway, and yeah. and at the core of it is also a really fascinating story about a very interesting time in 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 our history, and and pivoted around a really interesting guy. Right, and that is Boy George, right? So it's 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 the the story of Boy George, sort of the semi autobiographical, or I guess not semi, it's fully autobiographical. Um, you know, ode to not just his own journey from you know obscurity to being a pop star, um, but also, and what I love most about the show is uh, sort of capturing the London club scene of the 1980s. Right, it had such a sense of time and place. Well, that's that what I'm. So that's what I'm talking about. Yes, and I think yeah. it's it's also yeah. like it starts. 
in that pre-AIDS world of the mm-hmm. 80s, and then it moves on through with Lee Bowery as as one of the characters who was a hugely influential um, sort of bon vivant artist uh, who yeah. who then died of AIDS, right? Um, yeah. And and but it's really it it. It's so, as somebody who is around in that time and as somebody who went to clubs in the 80s and, and, and was a bit of a club kid, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, um, I, I can say with, with, with great assurity that speaking as you did of time and place, they captured it perfectly. They really, yeah. it's one of the best examples of what that world was like and, and the energy and the frenetic quality and the inventiveness of people's outfits and that whole sort of club kid world where people would would really live their lives for this nightlife and and create these characters and these costumes uh, it, it was quite perfect in that sense And a score that I just, I return to all the time. And it's a great cast album. Ewan Morton made his Broadway debut as Boy George and was phenomenal. Um, he became but Boy also, George. Right, yes. But also Raul Esparza, you know, was in a Jeffrey Carlson uh, as, um, as Boy George's best friend. Was so incredible. And he was not a you know, musical theater performer. He sort of popped, you know, out of obscurity himself, in, you know, in, in, into this show. Um, in a terrific cast, Liz McCartney, who, I mean, I could listen to her sing all day, right? Um, but we've talked about all the great things about the show. Let's talk about some of the things that weren't as successful about Taboo. Uh, I think starting with, you know, and this is not Taboo's fault, but I have to imagine that in 2003, I mean, let's, you know, go back in time and remember the world in 2003. Um, you know, George W. Bush is president. We are, you know, at war in Iraq. Um, you know, it's a very different time. Same-sex marriage is not legal in America. And in fact, it is about to be weaponized in the 2004 election. The culture was in a very interesting time of transition. Um, and, you know, the internet was still somewhat of a, a nascent thing in terms of fan culture around Broadway shows. So all, I'm saying all that to set up the fact that here you had this musical Produced by Rosie O'Donnell, which we have not mentioned, um, who was the sole producer of the show, invested $10 million of her own money into the show to make it happen. Lost all that money, of course. Um, And it was sort of unapologetically itself, which is to say that I'll never forget the ad campaign of this show. You know, there's a song that is sung by Lee Bowery that is all about cruising for gay sex in a restroom, right? And uh, as wonderful a subject as that is for a song in a musical, um, that was sort of taken as the theme for the ad campaign. And there were literally giant posters of men at urinals (laughs) and Lee Bowery, who of course was played by Boy George, um, you know, in his elaborate getup, right? So the show did not go out of its way to make itself sort of welcoming to the sensibilities of uh, a Broadway theater goer, which the average Broadway theater goer is not, you know, a 30-year-old gay man. Um, The average theater goer on Broadway is a 50-something-year-old woman 
from the suburbs, right? That is who was buying tickets to Broadway shows. Um, so here you had this show that was like queer before we were, you know, using queer left and right to describe things, right? It was in a lot of ways ahead of its time and unabashedly itself and had as its cheerleader and sole producer um, someone who, in terms of her own public persona, was also coming out. I mean, literally, but also just re reimagining herself in the public's eye, right? Rosie O'Donnell, who was this like sweetheart of network television in the late 1990s, um, had come out in 2002 after her show ended as a lesbian, and this was part of her sort of uh, reemergence into the culture. Um, and of course, she was involved in a lawsuit. Uh, that was eating at the tabloids uh, every single day while the show was in previews and opened on Broadway. And so there was a lot of, just like there was a lot of noise around Merrily We Roll Along, there was a lot of noise around Taboo and a lot of people rooting for it to fail. And there was a lot of, you referenced this a second ago, a lot of gossip with surrounded with the show, not only with mm-hmm. Rosie and her personal issues in terms of her lawsuit yeah. and America having to get sort of shift its focus on who she presented herself as, right? Because for so long, she was America's sweetheart. And that really right. was not who she was, right? She's a much more complicated person and and she was just coming into being the Rosie we all know and love now right and she she yeah. she did all of that in front of the world right while fighting a lawsuit and trying to produce this very difficult troubled show and it just it, in a politically conservative culture absolutely right? I mean, let's not forget that right that was the atmosphere in which the show arrived talk about a stacked deck against you yeah. and 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 <laughs> yeah. and, and she was a novice producer. And she had really, you know, she found the show in, in the UK, right? I mean, she's well, the one who brought it to America. And in the course of that, you know, Charles Bush came on to rewrite the book. And, you know, I haven't seen the, the London version from 2002. I know there's a cast album. Um, but, you know, people did say that there were you know, problems with the book and that, you know, perhaps it lost some of the edge that it had in London in the way that it was reimagined for Broadway. Um, you know, I, I haven't been able to do the analysis because I've never, you know, I've never seen or read the, the UK version. Um, but that was another big knock against the show, right? I mean, it's not just that it was so great and people didn't appreciate it. No, the show itself had its problems. Had its problems right? And part of that was the book. Right. But I think what the show had, which really resonated with its fans, including the two of us, and, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of this, I think, was also ingrained in Rosie O'Donnell. It had this show had this heart to it. And it had yeah. it had this yeah. it had this joyous take no prisoners. This is who I am and this is the this is the life I want to lead and this is the world in which we live. And Rosie, I think, embodied that, right? It was art mirroring life. You know, she was in yeah, her own yeah. personal life. She was saying a very similar thing that the show says, which is, this is who I am. Love me or leave me. I'm not going to apologize for for being who I am or what I love or any of that. And that's the ethos of the show. Right, right. I mean, uh, the song Stranger to the World. Um, which is sung early and it's the introduction of the Boy George character, um, is one of the most beautiful, sort of um, sympathetic, heartfelt, I want songs that I've ever encountered in a yeah. musical. 
you know, and, and it's captured beautifully on the album. You always knew, didn't you, mother? You always knew, as mothers always do. You always knew, didn't you, mother? I was a stranger in this world. This dumb education. To me, that's an example of what you're talking about, right? Of how how uh, the show could sort of get under the skin and into the DNA of the people who, who loved it because of moments like that song, right? That have this yearning, that have this expression of something that we've all felt, but that particularly members of the queer community have felt, right? Which is this idea of living in a world that wasn't meant for you um, and then coming to terms with who you are and then wanting to, to express that and to live that, right? I mean, that's the story of Boy George. It's the story of Taboo. And I have to imagine that were taboo to have a revival, wink, wink, someone should do that, um, or, or had it uh, you know, premiered now, right? In the world we live in now, with the change in our culture and the shift in the way that fans of Broadway shows interact with and support those shows, um, I have to imagine it would be a completely different reception in today's culture and society um, because, you know, because of, because of the way that so much has changed since 2003. So I would love for someone somewhere at some time in the future <laughs> to do, uh, to revisit Taboo and, and to, to, to give it the production that it deserves so that I can have the response that it deserves. I, I agree with that. And I, and I think it'll happen. Yeah. And I also think this is one of those shows that will be vindicated in the end. I think this is one of those shows that yeah. with the right team to, to, finish it off, so to speak, they'll get it right. And, and, and yeah. I think it will be, I think it, I, th I think it could have a huge life. Yeah. Amazing. Well, we have talked through, uh, quite a lot of shows. <laughs> We've talked through, you know, the, the greats of the musical theater, like Rogers and Hammerstein and Stephen Sondheim who have had, you know, as much as they've had great successes, they've had great failures. We've talked about sequels, which no one should ever do. We've talked about vampires, which no one should ever do. If, We've if about, you learn two things from this yeah. podcast, <laughs> no, sequels. no sequels and no vampires. no vampires, right? We've talked about shows that were vindicated in the end, like Sideshow. We've talked about shows like Taboo that have yet to have that vindication. And then we've talked about shows like Breakfast at Tiffany's and Kelly that should probably never be seen again. And we've talked about shows that are forgotten, but but perhaps could could live another life. And I would I would put the Civil War in that category. I, I think that's a show yeah, that, yeah. Um, again, like Taboo, with the right team behind it to to give it yeah, the thing that yeah. it didn't have the first time around, could be quite a marvelous evening in the theater. So it just goes to show. I mean, there are so many different manifestations of what a flop is and means uh, to the culture. Uh, to the musical theater, of course, to fans like us. Uh, so to properly bookend this episode, we have to end, like I said it's at the top, where we began uh, with Carrie, which um, still, for better or for worse, whether fair or not, uh, retains its title of being the flop against which all other flops are compared. But interestingly enough, uh, when we left off with Betty Buckley in part one, we were talking about how um, the reviews that Carrie received were not um, all negative. No, that's only half of the story. And I think to finish the story and round things out, let's turn to the legendary Betty Buckley. To be honest with you, 
by the end, the bad reviews, we've got, we got quite a few, but we got just as many great reviews, but you needed some money to run it. They all got together. And apparently this Bruce Mailman who owned the saint and had a lot of money was going to come forward and put, he needed $2 million more to run the show past the bad reviews, you know, in terms of doing a marketing campaign. And that was their plan which we were all excited about. So we did, I think it was the Saturday matinee and we all met after the matinee and apparently we were going to get the money, the infusion of money and then go forward. And so that was all well and good. And by the time we came back from the dinner break, the closing notice had been posted, which was very disappointing. And so my brother took the red eye, came in and saw the last performance of the show, which was, I believe the next day. And I asked him afterwards, I said, well, what, what is it, Norman? Tell me, really give me your appraisal because so many of the reviews had been great and so many had not, uh, had been like, it really provoked people in a way that I'd never witnessed in, in a show or reviews before. And he said, well, Betty Lynn, you know, you and Lindsay are doing some really groundbreaking, remarkable work. You're invited to really open your heart and, you know, to have some really uh, free associative experiences of the complexity of an abusive parent-child relationship. And then it goes into this different style of work that was very confusing and caused the audience to be really not taken care of on an emotional journey as intense as we had made it for them. So that's kind of it. That's what happened. I think it was an incredible groundbreaking piece that was flawed, you know, had some things that needed to be worked out. And the business of musical theater is so huge that this neophyte Broadway producer needed to have planned a marketing budget and strategy to carry him past what was going to obviously be some conflicted reviews. And so he got that money together, but his advisors at the last minute, they were like, you can't risk it because everything you've got is is in hock. You know, you can't risk losing anymore. But I was there and I saw the impact of the show on audiences. And I really think it could have continued to run and made his money back for, I mean, maybe I'm just a positive thinker. Probably I am, but um, I try to be. It had that impact. Audiences were... Uh, horrified and terrified and riveted by it and very passionate about it. The handful of people that actually saw it were in every single performance. There were massive standing ovations. It was an incredible event. Oh Lord, I've seen this part before. The blessings we get I have lost. Father, don't forsake her. Father, take her. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. At this difficult time, please consider making a donation to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. 
Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.